the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. I keep showing you this book because I want all of you to investigate and hopefully even get this book, which is Creating the Quran by Stephen Shoemaker. And that's why we called this particular series Creating the Quran. Uh, you know, we want to be respectful, of course, of the title since we are using this book as the main object of our series. However, uh, periodically, we are going to interject our own findings, thoughts, research, commentaries, and so on and so forth. And today uh, is no exception to that, of course. We have been, for the last couple of episodes, showing evidence that there is something that Dr. J coined and called it basically from his readings, I should say, of the book. He called it Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj paradigm. And we've been also showing evidence from early Christians. When, when we say early, we're talking kind of like 8th century sometimes or before or after that supports the idea that the evolution and the rise of the Quran happened at a later time or at least it wasn't standardized at the time of Uthman, meaning there was still fluidity in the production of the Quran and standardizing that text itself. Today, we will be uh, taking a look at what is called the Dialogue of Abraham, Tiberius, and the Emir. And with me here, of course, to discuss all of this is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., welcome back. Thank you. This has been excellent, this whole series. And we're looking now at two different paradigms, two different time periods when Western scholars and Muslims as well, but mostly Western scholars, we're more interested in them because they're the ones who are actually asking the questions, being critical. Don't expect Muslims to be critical on this point. They just take it as verbatim that Uthman was the one that put it together. Uthman, and we have called the Western scholar paradigm the Noldekishwali paradigm, which points to the Uthmanic uh, context or the Uthmanic compilation for the Quran. And so that's the name that Shoemaker gives. That's the name we'll run with for these episodes. But there's a new one that Shoemaker is now introducing, and that's, as you notice, as you mentioned, the Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj. That's a lot of words, but it's two men, really. Abdul Malik is the caliph. Al-Hajjaj is his governor in Iraq. Those are the ones that were given, that, that took upon themselves to actually create the Quran, the one that we have here, this, this book that we have here. Yeah. So that uh, one, uh, the Uthmanic would be 652. Now we're in the change uh, between the 7th to 8th century. So let's just say 700. Let's just put 700 to make it easier for everybody. It's the turn of the century, going into the 8th century. And what Shoemaker does is he goes and he gives support from that from Christian sources. This is outside the tradition. Therefore, uh, there is no need to hold with the narrative, 
the narrative that is the standard narrative uh, that, that we keep on talking about uh, because these guys actually predate that standard narrative. So that's why they, we can trust them more. And their material has not been eradicated. Their material has not been sublimated. Mm-hmm. Their material has not been destroyed because they're not within the Arab tradition. They're not within. See, Islam hasn't come to the fore yet, so I don't want to call it Islam. Well, let's right, that's true. I mean, it was called like uh, Hagarin, Ishmaelites. And Ishmaelites, like they're called Hagarins. They were called, um, uh, they, they were also called uh, uh, Muhajiruns, which means people of the Hijr. Right. Uh, they're all call, they are also called uh, the Sarasans. These are the names they give themselves, mm-hmm, these Arabs. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already talked about John of Damascus, who was there in the courts with Abdul Malik. He is a eyewitness to this happening, this uh, compilation by Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj. We also then talked uh, about the uh, Leo III, who had this, de- not a debate, but these letters back and forth. They're both from the 8th uh, century, uh, mid-8th century and late 8th century. We're now going to move into the 9th century. So we're quite a bit later now. We're almost 100 years later, and we have this guy named Abraham of Tiberius. And he is uh, having a dialogue. He's a Melkite Christian, and he's having a dialogue with Emir Abd al-Rahman al-Hashimi, in Jerusalem, around 820. Mm-hmm. So we're now in the, well into the ninth century, 20 years into the ninth century. A hundred years later, this is long after Abdul Malik, long after Al-Hajjaj. Yeah. May I just make a quick comment here? Uh, Al-Hashimi, you know, it's kind of interesting because it ties into the Quraysh, actually, tribe. So, but you're saying it's north. That's interesting. The second thing I want to just make a quick comment to people, if you don't know that Al-Hajjaz made additions and corrections to the Quran, well, we're telling you that that's what Al-Hajjaj did and that's why we're using that. And it's really really interesting, Jay, that I've always wondered, how can anyone allow Al-Hajjaz to change the Quran? Because no one dares to change the Quran, but now we know why he was part of the process of creating the Quran. Exactly. And he was in authority. That's the big thing. Mm-hmm. He is directly under the auspices, under the authority of Abdul Malik himself. You can't get any bigger than Abdul Malik. And Abdul Malik can do whatever he wants. And remember, there was no religion called Islam this early. Mm-hmm. There were no people called Muslims this early. They were called Ishmaelites. So they really didn't have a theological tradition that they had to hold true to. But they did need a scripture. They did need a book in order to compete with the Jews and the Christians. So what Shoemaker says is in 820, you have this dialogue, and Abraham refers to the matter of the Quran's lineage. Uh, He seems to be well aware of the Islamic tradition's different accounts of the Quran's origins. So he's aware of this. He's aware of what they have been saying prior to this. He notes that following Muhammad's death, so he does refer to Muhammad because we're in the ninth century, Muhammad is well known by now. Remember, this is the Abbasid period. Muhammad was really created at the end of the Umayyad period, but really took hold and became their prophet during the Abbasid period from 749 on. We're in 820 now. And he, he, he talks about Muhammad's followers. And he even began to compile the words that he taught them. He then names a full range of various alleged instigators. And he gives the names of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, and Ibn Abbas. So he's already aware of these names. Mm-hmm. These names are now common parlance. He even refers to Mu'awiyah in that lynch. But then he says this. Following this list, Abraham then says, after them, so he's listing all these names, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, Ibn Amas, and Mu'awiyah. After them, so now we're full after them. It was Al-Hajjaj, he says, Ibn Yusuf, who composed and arranged the Quran. Proving right now that he is putting his money where he's pretty much saying, this is the man that we have to give credit to. Mm-hmm. So Shoemaker's conclusion is this. 
it is clear that the final composition and the addition of the Quran, according to this witness from the 9th century, was done by Al-Hajjaj. While others may have been made earlier efforts to gather Muhammad's teaching together, it was Al-Hajjaj who produced the final authoritative version of the Islamic sacred text. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need. That's what we have. And now we're in the 9th century and they're still saying this. Wonderful. Proof, if you need any more proof, from outside the Islamic sources, from outside any control by the Abbasids, you're getting this reference point. Because he's not under the Abbasids, even though he's during the time of the Abbasids. That's why he gives lip service to these other names, because those are well known by this time. He is pointing it out. It's Al-Hajjaj that put together this book called the Quran. Very well done. Thank you so much. Next time we're going to talk, I think, about Al-Kindi. One more in the ninth century. Yes. And he's pretty exciting. Wonderful. And he is basically uh, known also in terms of his apology and uh, his debate that he has done. Uh, Well, folks, um, this will be the conclusion of this episode. We're doing it intentionally short, sweet, and straight to the point. Next time, as you've heard, we will be talking yet about another person who is late in the 8th century who will also collaborate this paradigm, meaning... uh, Uh, Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj paradigm in terms of their creation of the Quran. Until next time, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for Sira International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to sirainternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Today we're going to take a look at Al-Kindi and what we call the apology of Al-Kindi. With me here, of course, in studios, as always, to unpack all of that for us is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., thank you, as always, for all of this information. And we really were thankful for Dr. Shoemaker also, who provided uh, many of that to, to collaborate uh, the, the things that you've been saying we've been saying here in the channel as well so it comes to us as no surprise that he is on board with this kind of information not that he's agreeing with me, you and I but it seemed like his findings does collaborate everything we've been saying so what about Al-Kindi for instance and his testimony concerning the creation of the Quran all right we've already talked about uh, Abraham uh, from uh, Tiberius who had this dialogue with the emir in 820. So we're in the ninth century now. So we're a good 100 years after uh, this compilation that was put together by Abdul Malik and Al Hajjaj. And we call it the Al Malik Al Hajjaj paradigm, in contradistinction to the Uthmanic uh, uh, compilation, which we know earlier as the Nodekishwali paradigm. To, confr- to corroborate that, you need outside corroboration not within the tradition, because within the tradition would be biased, and more than that, it would also be controlled, and uh, as we well know, the Abbasids destroyed anything that the Umayyads said or Mm -hmm. did. So the destruction is wholesale by the Abbasids. So we can't trust those traditions. We've said this for years. If it's from the 9th and 10th century redacted back to the 7th century, we pretty much can throw it all out because it's all contrived. We know this about uh, al-Buhari, where he took 600,000 and we'll whittle them down to 7,397, threw out 98% and only retained 2%. This is quite normal. So that's why you need outside corroboration. In this case, Christians who are seeing this happen. So here we have Al-Kindi. Now, Al-Kindi is in the ninth century. And between 
813 and 833 are the dates that he would be that we're talking about. So sometime he writes his apology. And in this apology, he's very clear that the Quran is still being created as he speaks. He's watching it and he's kind of chiding those because he's there working in the courts of Mamun. Right, which uh, which is the Abbasid Caliph. So he's he's much like John of Damascus. A later day, John of Damascus, another century later, he's in the courts there in Baghdad, and he's watching this happen, and he's making some critical remarks. Up till now, we've always thought that this guy's a wacko. Everybody has dismissed him because he says, "How can you be saying these kind of things in the ninth century?" Now we know why. And he, he it's interesting. He knows about the Quran, so he talks about this Quran, refers to it. And then he also knows about Ali. He says this, Ali is alleged to have collected the Quran soon after Muhammad's death. You know, so he's talking to the, to, by the, they're now Muslims now. They call themselves Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know that Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf collected the codices and he remade, removed things from them. So he's saying, listen, <laughs> Ali is not the only one. So he's talking about the Ali vintage um, because this is the tradition that he's re- reading. This is the tradition he's hearing. You say it's Ali, you say it's Abu Bakr, you say it's Uthman, but you know it's really Al-Hajjaj who did this, is what he's saying. He also knows, knows about the companion codices. And he says this, The tradition of an initial collection of leaves under Abu Bakr and other collections were also independently produced at this time, including those of Ubay ibn Ka'ab and of the Allah ibn Masud. So he's talking about the, the codex that exists there in Damascus by Ubay ibn Ka'ab, and he's also referring to the one ibn Masud. This is... 813 to 833. So very, uh, we're talking a little about, about about 150 years after the fact, he's naming those. And then he talks um, about Al-Hajjaj. And he talks about the account, that the standard Islamic narrative, and he confronts it. And this is what he says. The canonical narrative proposed that Uthman created an authoritative version. That's your account, Muslims. Mm-hmm. Sending copies to Mecca, Medina, Syria, and Kufa. Yet, he says, only the Syrian copy of Uthman's Quran is set to have escaped destruction. Then there was the intervention by Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who left no copy that he did not reacquire and removed many things from it. Bingo! That's what we're looking for. Now we understand what he's talking about. Shoemaker is correct. We've always been correct. And Shoemaker is underlining this. said, this guy has no agenda. He really doesn't have a need to say this, but he is observing this. He's there in the courts right. of Imam. He says, you are the ones who are a part. It's really Al-Hajjaj. Why haven't you named him? It's really Abdul Malik. Now, it is Al-Hajjaj who's doing the work, but it's under the auspices, under the authority of the Abdul Malik. But so, it shows the, the, the political tension, obviously. That's why the Abbasides do not want to give him credit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is Shoemaker's conclusion? Well, he concludes this. Clearly, he says... Al-Kindi, like Abraham from Tiberias earlier, has drawn his information about the Quran from the Islamic tradition. And yet both writers showed that the collection of the Quran, at least as these Christian writers had learned of it, was largely the work of Al-Hajjaj, who made some substantial changes to the contents of the text and established its final form. And what these Christian authors were hearing from their Islamic contemporaries in the early 9th century clearly indicates that Al-Hajjaj did far more than merely add some dire critics and arrange the surahs in their current form. The Islamic traditional account is like 11 11 changes. Exactly. That's all you hear, 11 changes. Nothing really significant, Mr. Smith. No, that's what your traditions say. That's what your Abbasid-controlled traditions say. Let's look and see what the historical account says. And let's let somebody who's outside of your traditions, but in the courts of Mahmud, let's hear what he has to say. He's saying that this is absolutely a wholesale tra- uh, changes, proving that the, that the, he really, the Quran that we have today, 
would have to be his. Now, we're going to even change that. Shoemaker's going to go beyond that because he's going to say later on, we haven't come to it yet, even later on, what uh, Al-Hajjaj and Al-Malik was just the beginning of the Quran. The Quran continues to get changed from century to century. And that's, of course, what we're finding out now with the whole kirat in the Ahruf on top of that. That's right. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, if there is no other reason why people should get this book, at least they need to watch these uh, videos and these shows because it is very exciting. By every show, we are revealing yet a new evidence, yet a new information. Most of the time, these are evidence and information that not a whole lot of people have been privy to or at least knew about, like uh, the involvement of Al-Hajjaj and how hefty that involvement would have been. And I mean, Al-Hajjaj, uh, we've always grown up learning that he has such a harsh reputation and he was a tough person. This is why I was always surprised. How can he dare to change the Quran? Well, we know why, because he was single-handedly the guy in charge, the general editor, if you wish, of the Quran. And he's the one who did the best he can to eliminate any other competing copies. Next time, I think we are going to talk now about Abdul Malik. You're going to say, what did he actually do? What was it that he's been credited for? And what was going on with Al-Hajjaj, the Malik and the Al-Hajjaj paradigm? Wonderful. Until next time, folks, uh, this is Al-Fadi, and I pray that you are enjoying this uh, show. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al-Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Today we're going to take a closer look at what did Abdul Malik actually do? And with me here to discuss this is our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., so what was the role that Abdul Malik played in the creation of the Quran? Well, it's obvious from everything we've come up to this time that he had a huge role, and that was to really solidify, put together, bring about all these disparate traditions into one text, beginning, or I would say the nascent of what the Quran then became uh, or later on during the Abbasid period. But uh, Shoemaker says this, and Shoemaker uh, kind of says that history points to this Abdul Malik al-Hajjaj. He says that the Quran's composition and dissemination under the supervision and authority of al-Hajjaj and Abdul Malik makes perfect sense. He continues, their production and distribution of the Quran at the turn of the 8th century matches perfectly with the Quran's first appearance in the historical record only at this rather late date. And he's talking about the manuscript record. We're going to get to the manuscripts in future episodes. The manuscripts start to appear at this time as well. Right. The fact that there is no 7th century, right? There is no 7th yeah. century manuscript. And what is in the 7th century is not Quranic. It's pre-Quranic. It's all material that's Christian and Jewish and Ethiopic and other strands. But what we know that are uniquely from this book, even the reference points, even the way that it's put, even the, the uh, stylization, even the sentence structures are starting to appear only in the 8th century, about the time of the monarch. You have the Dome of the Rock. That is not the same as what you see here, the inscriptions that are there, the coins. They are not what you see here. That you only see from the manuscripts um, uh, evidence. That's yet to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wellhausen and Robinson and Hoyland make say the reason why. You need a book in the Arabic language for the Arabic people at that time. And that's what Abdul Malik was known for. He was the great Arab reformer. In contradistinction to Aramaic, which was the language of 
the Byzantine Christians, that was their language. That was their holy language. That was their language of liturgy. That was the language of the seminaries. That was the language of the aristocracy. But the people who were living on the ground, people who were doing all the commerce, people who were who uh, uh, who, who were uh, lived in that area and who saw themselves as Ishmaelites, their language is Arabic. Mm-hmm. So you needed to have a, a book for them. You needed to have a revelation for them. And them means the people who are the Ishmaelites. They saw in their tradition as coming from Ishmael back to Abraham. So that's why it's important that you have this book. And so this is Wellhausen, Robinson, and Hoyland are all saying this. And they say this, Abdul Malik's move to thoroughly Arabicize both the state and the religion, conducting their official affairs solely in Arabic, while in the religious sphere, a new and profound emphasis centered on a distinctively Islamic monotheism, it wasn't called Islamic then, it was, it was, it was, in fact, it was actually seen as a anti-Trinitarian sect of Christianity, defined by an Arabic prophet who brought a unique revelation in Arabic in the Arabian Hijaz, that is, now they say Hijaz, I'm going to dispute that, and we're going to dispute that, in fact, even unwittingly, our good friend, Shoemaker is going to dispute that, but nonetheless, Mrs. Wellhausen back in 1927, Robinson in 2005, and Hoyland in 2006. We're now in 2022-2023. Now preserved in an unequaled Arabic sacred scripture. So there's the emphasis. You need to have an Arabic book for the Arabic people in their own language. And somebody who is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough, with enough an authority is the only one that can do that. Mm-hmm. See, you and I can't do that. Uh, uh, a somebody who is in a seminary or a bishop can't do that. It has to be a caliph, a caliph right. who's just won a battle, a exactly. huge battle against Justinian II in 692. Remember, he defeated Justinian II, his greatest superpower. The only other superpower of that day was Justinian II. He goes to war with him in 691, in 692, excuse me, because of the coin. You need to go back to the coin and see this mockery. He takes off the crosses of Heraclius and his two sons, and he take and he he. he he destroys the Byzantine cross on the back of the coin to give his uh, to give money to him. Of course, Justinian II is incensed by this. He goes to war against Abdul Malik. Abdul Malik g- fights him, defeats him, introduces a brand new coin with himself holding a sword and the Shahada there, and he's thumbing his nose, saying, "I am the new leader. I am the one on the ground, and everything on my coin is in Arabic." Right. There's that Arabic Reformation. He's bringing in Arabic now. Now that he's done that with the coins, now you can see why he then needs to have a scripture. He needs to have a scripture in Arabic. That's why it's so important. So look and see what they, they say. And this is Shoemaker saying this. Great Shoemaker. He brings it all together. He says, Abdul Malik's deliberate program of Islamicizing and Arabizing the faith of the believers provides a credible context in which to situate the final composition in establishment of a new Islamic scripture in the Quran. Not only then did Abdul Malik have a clear motive for establishing such a text, he, unlike Uthman who'd come earlier and his other earlier protest predecessors, also had the means to enforce it. You needed a man of his stature. That's why he's such a big man on the, on the screen. That's why he's the biggest, the greatest of all the Umayyad caliphs. Anybody knows this. Historically, he was the one that pushed the borders out. He was the one that really imposed himself. And that's why he built this building right there in Jerusalem to show his strength, to show his might, thumbing his nomads at the Christians because he builds this building looking down on the church of the sepulcher, thumbing his nose at the Jews because he builds it right in their holy ground, the holy of holies where King, David's, where King David uh, had built the temple. That's why in this case, this is a theological statement. This is a political statement. And it's all for the Arabs. 
That's why once you have done that and you've built the building, you've thumbed your nose, you even start confront Jesus and everything that's on the inscriptions on the door of the rock, it's all against Jesus' divinity, all against the Trinity. What do you do? Then you bring in your own scripture and that scripture has to be in Arabic. And that also plays into the hands of John of Damascus who always uh, made the statement that the Islamic movement is a, a heretical movement out of Christianity. Then say Islamic, the Ishmaelite movement. Right, right. I, I'm using that just casually. But what I'm saying... In well, make his, sure you get it right, because people think, ah, oh, so he was Islamic. He wasn't attacking Islam. Okay, well, uh, we'll, we'll argue over that. All I'm saying is he always claimed that it is a heretical movement, which shows because he is a monotheistic. He wasn't a Trinitarian uh, in his views. That's why John of Damascus would make statements like this. Absolutely. And interesting that you bring that up. The fact that he says it's heretical means it has something Christian to do with it. That's right. You can't be heretical unless you're Christian to begin with. I would suggest that Abdul Malik always saw himself as a Christian, but as a true Christian, because he did not elevate Jesus to the status of divinity. What is the number one uh, rule that all Muslims throw against us? How dare you take a man That's right. and commit shirk? Shirk is the most unforgivable. So they sin. agree with Abdul Malik and, and his stance. Abdul Malik was yeah. one that introduced that idea. That's right. Shirk was really a creation of Abdul Malik. And of course, the Dome of the Rock inscription talks it's about it. It's all against Shirk. It's all against elevating and saying that this has nothing to do with God. He is not God. He is not. There is no such thing as Trinity. He's not even the Son of God. He is nothing more than a messenger. That's right. That's right. Well, what are we going to talk about next? Because uh, we're wrapping up this one. We're going to go and we're going to say what then happened. Why did this narrative get lost? What happened to Abdul Malik right. and Abdul question. And how did it get lost? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And everyone, hopefully you'll join us next time to find the answer to this question. How did this uh, paradigm get lost? Until then, have a blessed day. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.